0: Today we've got another episode in our series called Storylines. It's about people, places, and things that show up repeatedly in the Bible and that have special significance and meaning. Today we're going to explore part two of Mountains. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. In part one, we explored four mountains, Mount Ararat, Mount Sinai, also known as Horeb, Mount Carmel, and the Mount of Beatitudes. As I mentioned in part one, this storyline isn't about real estate, as though the mountains themselves are significant. Rather, the significance is in what happened on these mountains. On the mountains of the Bible, we discover the intersection between the things of God and the things of this world. The next mountain that we want to explore is known as the Mount of Transfiguration. The three biographical sketches of Jesus' life and ministry, namely the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do not specifically name this mountain. Some of the early church fathers who lived in the 4th century suggested that Jesus' transfiguration occurred on Mount Tabor, a single peak that was 1,886 feet high. The other mountain that Bible scholars have suggested is Mount Hermon. Although no one can be be certain about this, I think Mount Hermon is the more likely location, and I'll tell you why. First, those early church fathers based their conclusion on a mistranslation of Matthew 17 verse 1. Here's the verse in question. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. The early church fathers had translated the last part of the verse as, and led them up a high mountain by itself. They understood the word itself to be referring to a single peak mountain, such as Mount Tabor. But the Greek word is literally translated as privately. This was a private event involving just Jesus, Peter, James, and John. The NIV translates it as themselves, namely, just the four of them. Mount Tabor has been the traditional site of the Transfiguration since the fourth century, but it was based on a mistranslation of the Greek Bible. Secondly, both Matthew and Mark indicate that the Mount of Transfiguration was a high mountain. Mount Tabor is less than 2,000 feet in height. In contrast, Mount Hermon is over 9,000 feet high. Hermon is almost five times as high as Tabor. The third reason I favor Mount Hermon is because of where Jesus and his disciples were just before the Transfiguration. Matthew tells us that Jesus was visiting villages in northern Galilee, in the area around the city of Caesarea Philippi. Six days later, we're told the transfiguration occurred. Now Mount Tabor is 70 miles from Caesarea Philippi. That's quite a hike in six days. In comparison, Mount Hermon is just 14 miles from Caesarea Philippi. So it seems to me that Mount Hermon makes more sense as the location for Jesus' transfiguration. But again, it's not about the real estate. It's about the event. So what about the event? When Jesus and the three disciples went up to the mountain, we are told that Jesus was transfigured before them. A definition of the word transfigure might be helpful. Merriam-Webster defines it as to give a new and typically exalted or spiritual appearance to. Matthew chapter 17 tells us what a transfigured Jesus looked like. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter responded to this event by saying to Jesus, It's good to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, I'm not exactly sure what Peter was thinking, but while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, They saw no one except jesus what an amazing sight this must have been to see jesus with an exalted appearance to witness moses and elijah standing there to hear the voice of god the father speak about his love and approval for his son wow that must have been incredible to see a glimpse of god's glory and to hear the voice of god although hearing the voice of god caused the trio to hit the ground in sheer terror. Jesus had brought the three disciples up the mountain to be witnesses of this incredible event. On the way down the mountain, though, Jesus told them not to tell anyone, not even the other disciples, about what they had witnessed, at least not until after Jesus' resurrection. In due time, Peter would share the experience from the Mount of Transfiguration, He wrote about it in his second letter. He said, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father, when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of God's power and glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. We'll see it too one day when we stand in God's presence and it will be just as amazing. The sixth mountain that we want to explore is the Mount of Olives. Needless to say, it was called the Mount of Olives because of the groves of olive trees that grew there. Makes sense. Now, when you think of the Mount of Olives, you think of Jesus, don't you? I certainly do. Jesus often spent time on the Mount of Olives when he was in the Jerusalem area. It was just east of the city across the Kidron Valley. He would sometimes even spend the night there with his disciples. On Holy Thursday, after the Last Supper, Jesus went there with his disciples minus one. That night, in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was located on the Mount of Olives, he prayed to his Father in heaven while his disciples slept. It's the place where the crowd, with their clubs and swords, had come to arrest Jesus and take him to stand trial before the Jewish religious leaders. It's the place where Judas Iscariot, One of Jesus' friends and followers betrayed him. A few hours later, however, Judas would regret his actions and, in his despondence, went out and hanged himself. Six weeks later, there would be another event on the Mount of Olives with Jesus and his disciples. As you may know, Jesus ascended to heaven 40 days after his resurrection. That event took place on the Mount of Olives. So when I think of the Mount of Olives, I think first of Jesus. My guess is that you do too. But the Mount of Olives had significance in the lives of other people in the Bible as well. King David was one of them. You may recall that while king, David had a huge moral failure. He slept with a woman married to a soldier serving in his army. He tried to cover up. When that didn't work, he had his general see to it that the soldier died at the hand of the enemy. And then David took the woman to be his own wife. Because of this, God told David, through Nathan the prophet, out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. There were multiple calamities that fell to David because of his adultery and murder. One of them was caused by his own son Absalom who undermined the kingship of his father. And to assist with his conspiracy against David, Absalom enlisted the help of one of David's closest advisors and friends, a man by the name of Ahithophel. The rebellion against David's kingship got to the point where David had no choice but to flee the palace in Jerusalem. And where did he go? To the Mount of Olives. We read about it. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, his head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. David was betrayed by a friend that resulted in him having to flee to the Mount of Olives for safety. God answered David's prayer. Ahithophel had given Absalom a solid strategy for defeating David and his men. But another advisor by the name of Hushai convinced Absalom not to follow Ahithophel's advice. When Ahithophel learned that his advice had been rejected, he got on his donkey, put his house in order, and went and hanged himself David would write in one of the Psalms even my close friend whom I trusted he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me There are some parallels here aren't there David Jesus Mount of Olives Friends who betrayed each of them and both betrayers taking their own lives the Mount of Olives was a place of significant events for both David and Jesus It's also a place of significance for us. From the Mount of Olives, God's plan to save us started to unfold. The last mountain that we want to explore is rather complex. It spans the Bible. It's a thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation. It's a mountain that goes by different names depending on which part of the Bible you're reading. It's a mountain that moved. Seriously I'll explain that one in a bit. It's also a mountain where many big things happened Let's start in Genesis with Abraham Now you will not find the name Mount Zion in the book of Genesis in Abraham's day. It was known as Mount Moriah As you may recall Abraham and Sarah had waited a long long time for the birth of their son Isaac In fact, when Isaac was born, Abraham was 100 years old, and Sarah, the miracle mom, was 90. Can you imagine having your first child at that age? Then one day God came to Abraham and said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice Isaac there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about if i were abraham i would have said are you kidding me god you want me to do what well that wasn't abraham's response he headed to mount moriah with his servants some wood fire and isaac it was a three-day journey giving abraham plenty of time to think about what god was asking him to do when they arrived abraham told his servants to stay with the donkey and He and Isaac went further up the mountain. Isaac, looking around, asked, Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham replied, God will provide. Abraham built an altar and placed the wood on it. He then tied up his son and laid him on the wood. Then he reached for his knife to slay his son. At that moment, the angel of the Lord, which is another name for the Son of God, called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son. Wow. Then when Abraham looked up, he saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. God had indeed provided an animal for the sacrifice ram would serve as a substitute sacrifice for abraham on mount moriah the book of hebrews gives us some additional insight into what was going through abraham's mind abraham reasoned that god could even raise the dead even if he had slain his son isaac abraham believed god would bring him back to life because of the promise god made To make a great nation from isaac's descendants and here on mount moriah god repeated that promise that abraham's descendants would inherit the very land he was standing on and that all nations on the earth would be blessed through his descendants the next time we hear about mount moriah in the old testament is in second chronicles chapter 3. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah Where the Lord had appeared to his father David? It was on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite the place provided by David The background story of how David acquired the real estate on which Solomon's temple would be built is quite interesting But also very disappointing and actually sad After David had experienced military victory after victory over Israel's enemies, and peace was now in the land, he did a foolish and stupid thing. He gave the order to count all of the fighting men in Israel and Judah. It gave the impression to the people of the land that the strength of David's armies won the battles, not the hand of the Lord. And the Lord was greatly displeased with David's attitude and actions as well. As a result of this grievous offense, the Lord gave David the choice of three consequences for his arrogance. Either there would be three years of famine, three months of enemy invasion, or three days of plague. David chose the plague. 70,000 people died. And as the angel of death approached Jerusalem, David was racked with guilt and pleaded with God to spare the people, because it was he himself who was responsible for the wrong. That same day, the prophet Gad, did you know there was a prophet Gad? Well, anyway, he came to David and told him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. David told Arona that he wanted to buy his threshing floor and build an altar so that the plague would stop. Arona responded to David, as king, you can just have it. But David declined. No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord, and there sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. As I'm sure you've already figured it out, the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite was on Mount Moriah. It was on Mount Moriah that Solomon built the first permanent temple for the people of Israel. More than 500 years earlier, at the time of Abraham and Isaac, a substitutionary sacrifice was made on Mount Moriah. Going forward, hundreds of thousands of substitutionary sacrifices would be made on the Temple Mount at the temple built by Solomon. Bible scholars think that during the reign of Solomon, what had been Mount Moriah was then called Mount Zion. Zion means fortress or castle. But this isn't the first reference in the Old Testament to Mount Zion. The first references is in 2 Samuel chapter five. At this time, David had just become king over all of Israel. He and his soldiers marched up to Jerusalem to defeat the Jebusites who occupied what was called the stronghold of Zion. It was a fortress located on the southeastern hill of Jerusalem. After capturing the stronghold of Zion, David took up residence in the fortress and renamed it the City of David. Once Solomon completed the temple on the eastern hill, formerly known as Mount Moriah, the name Mount Zion migrated to the Temple Mount. By the way, there are other references to Mount Zion, again referring to it as the Temple Mount, in the books of Isaiah and Psalms, and in the intertestamental book of 1 Maccabees. Then in the first century AD, following the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the name Mount Zion was transferred to its present location across the Tyropoean Valley, to a hill in the southwest part of the city. Didn't I tell you that Mount Zion was a mountain on the move? But at the time of Jesus, Mount Zion was still referred to the Temple Mount. In addition to the times Jesus was at the temple during his ministry, Bible scholars point to other events that likely took place on Mount Zion. It was likely the location for the Last Supper, Jesus' trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, the day of Pentecost, and possibly even the Council of Jerusalem, around the year 50 AD, at which the status of converted Jews was discussed and resolved. Mount Zion was the site of many significant events. But there is one more Mount Zion in the New Testament that we want to explore, but you won't find it on any map. And you can't go and visit this Mount Zion At least, not yet. The writer to the Hebrews tells us about this Mount Zion. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. This Mount Zion refers to heaven itself, the dwelling place of God and those who are believers in Jesus. The Apostle John in the Book of Revelation refers also to this heavenly Mount Zion. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. As you may know, the visions in Revelation consistently use numbers symbolically. The 144,000 is representative of all the believers that will be in heaven from both the Old Testament and the New Testament eras. I'll talk more about numbers in the Bible in a future Bible thread series. As we have seen in part one and two, the mountains are typically presented as places to meet God. Did you know that one of the Hebrew names for God is El Shaddai? which is typically translated as God Almighty. But there is another meaning for El Shaddai. It can also be translated as God of the mountains. Isn't that interesting? Mountains, it's one of the Bible's storylines. If you'd like to explore further what happened on the mountains of the Bible, we have some great Time of Grace video devotional series. Check out the episode notes for links to these videos. And if you have any thoughts or questions about this podcast, please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. And thanks for listening. Join me next time for another episode in our Bible Threads series entitled Storylines. God bless.